thank you, Ben. Um, yeah, before I begin, I want to I want to say um, thank you to Ben as the sort of principal organizer, um, but also to acknowledge um, that part of what I want to present today emerges or has arisen in part in conversation with Bridget Anderson, um, with uh, Datsy. Zenovska. Um, <coughs> I deliberately asked for some tutoring earlier about the correct pronunciation of her name. Uh, of course, uh, of course, you shouldn't hold them responsible for anything I say or do here. But um, but these are important acknowledgments to make for this particular talk and this particular topic, um, because in many ways I want to present something that really is about a series of questions that for me are you know, quite open-ended. And um, the title, as uh, has been said, in a sense, is about Europe in question. And these are indeed questions for me as someone who um, is, in some important sense, not a European, um, yet where even this condition of being a non-European is itself ambiguous and questionable. Um, it seems to me that uh, I need your help. I'm very interested to hear your feedback. I invite your criticism um, because these very, very much are sort of thoughts that are in progress. There's a kind of experimental quality to what <coughs> I have to present today. Um, so I wanted to sort of say that as a way to frame what I'm trying to do here. So with no further ado, what is Europe? Who is a European? The pioneering African-American intellectual W.E.B. Du Bois famously articulated what, he's, what he characterized as the ever unasked question, routinely posed implicitly to black Americans. How does it feel to be a problem? While this dilemma persists, for people racialized as non-white, in the United States and Europe alike, the question has also become pertinent for the presumptively true or real Europeans. Each national identity, Englishness, much like that more composite thing, Britishness, and likewise Dutchness or Danishness or Spanishness and so forth, each national identity has become newly problematic destabilized in unprecedented and unforeseen ways by the mere presence and lived practices of migrants and their progeny. In this regard, the German obsession with self-interrogation in the extended aftermath of the Nazi Holocaust is simply the exception that proves the rule. Moreover, that rather broader and more encompassing figure, Europeanness, is once again a kind of elusive master signifier, perennially plagued with ambiguities and uncertainties, even as its salience seems ever more pronounced. Today, all of Europe has become obsessed with its identity. So, what is Europe? Who is a European? In these opening years of the 21st century, in the extended aftermath of the end of the Cold War, and especially now amidst the shocks of the global crisis of capitalism, 
what I will call the European question has become a problem of new significance and magnitude. Above all, in Europe itself, but also in its increasingly amorphous externalized border zones and beyond. Social movements during the 19th and 20th centuries were commonly pressed to address various political problems in terms, for example, of the Jewish question, or in the United States, the Negro question, the national question, or the woman question. Thus, they approached these questions from the largely unexamined vantage point of relative privilege and power. Today, we can justifiably say that these famous questions have been succeeded by the migration question. The figure of migration itself signals a murkier, a murkier set of preoccupations about the migrants themselves. It is indeed around this migrant question, or problem, that much of the academic research on migration has itself been fundamentally constituted. Will the migrants integrate? How might the integration of migrants be best facilitated? Do migrants represent a threat to social cohesion? How might migration be best managed in order to ensure such cohesion? The very categories of thought that commonly frame discourses of migration, including scholarly discourses, tend to present migrant mobility as a definite sort of problem that implicitly threatens the presumed normative good of social cohesion and commands various formula for enhancing the processes for the quote-unquote inclusion of migrant outsiders, or perhaps <coughs> for compelling those foreigners to figure out how to adequately integrate themselves. These discursive <coughs> conventions indeed ra reflect the larger sociopolitical context in which our scholarship and research operate, and where we may hope to intervene. And no doubt, these same analytical categories have by now begun to be subjected to a fair measure of critical deconstructivist energy. But what is Europe? Who is a European? These are questions that have been left insufficiently deconstructed. They are questions that concern us in profound and indeed in intimate ways. In the wake of decolonization on a global scale, coupled now with many decades of transnational, intercontinental, post-colonial migrations, as a sort of response to the hegemonic entrenchment of the migration question, we must critically formulate the European question from the vantage point of the cross-border mobility of migrants. On a global scale, migration is implicated in sociopolitical and spatial conflicts <coughs> defined around constructions of identity and difference, belonging and foreignness. Likewise, migration tends to be inseparable from ongoing sociopolitical processes of racialization and racial formation. Much as the migration question in Europe is always already an implicitly racial question, the European question, I want to argue, requires us to examine Europeanness itself as a problem, a problem of post-colonial whiteness. How then may we begin to examine anew the problem of European identity and the contradictory and competing productions of a European space as racial formations and racial projects? This question, it seems to me, is the ever unasked question always posed implicitly whenever the topic or theme of migration is addressed in the contemporary European context. Whereas the national question was posited historically as one concerning the emancipation and self-determination of subordinated national minorities. Today, the problem of national identity, national culture, national values, and of course also national sovereignty present themselves primarily 
as majoritarian projects articulated first and foremost in relation to migration, if not plainly against migrants. Consequently, the national question has thus reasserted itself in the form of a variety of profoundly racialized projects. If the European question tends to manifest itself as a resurgence of nationalisms, however, how may we begin to analyze these contemporary expressions of ostensibly national identity and prerogative across Europe as distinctly post-colonial racial projects? From the standpoint of migration and what we might call the new Europeans of color, what is the specificity, for instance, of the Greek problem or the British problem? The fascistic paramilitary operations of Golden Dawn in Greece and the comparatively, comparatively feckless thuggishness of the English Defense League are clearly distinct sociopolitical phenomena. But how substantially different are these manifestations of the new European nativist politics of national identity from the standpoint of those whom they target as the objects of their contempt and animosity? From the standpoint, in other words, of those whom they seek to terrorize. How does each of these new national questions differ from the analogous complex of nation, race, migration in other European countries? In spite of their historical particularities and substantive differences, therefore, what is the shared foundation, I want to ask? What is the shared foundation of these new European nativisms? And how does this expose in revealing ways the post-colonial condition of Europe as such, more generally. With the proliferation in recent years of far-right reactionary populisms that identify migrants as their premier target, virtually all European nation states have witnessed a reanimated nationalism that thrives on hostility toward foreigners and pushes a nativist politics of citizenship and entitlement more and more into the center of political discourse the generic, generic figures of immigration and the diffuse politics of foreignness suffice to reanimate race in terms that commonly and perhaps increasingly are articulated not as race overtly, but as nation in terms of the national identity of the so-called natives. Hence, racist far-right parties in Europe tend to articulate their reactionary anti-immigrant populism not only in terms of a pluralistic and differentialist incompatibility between their putative national culture and the foreignness of migrants, but also in the idiom of the purportedly legitimate politics of citizenship, which promotes the national priority of natives under the overt, overt rubric of racial, not of racial supremacism, but rather of the presumptive birthright entitlements of the nation or the people. And so we have the British National Party, the National Front in France, the National Alliance in Italy, the National Democratic Party, and the People's Union in Germany. And similarly, the Swiss People's Party, the Danish People's Party, the Popular Party in Portugal, among others. Although some of these nativist movements <coughs> may officially disavow their racism against migrants, many are quite crass and unabashedly racist. In either case, the emphatically national gesture is transparently and unapologetically equated with a belligerent politics of hostility to migrants. That's to say their nationalism is itself overtly and unabashedly exclusionary. Consequently, the national question has thus reasserted itself in Europe today in the form of a variety of profoundly racialized projects that specialize in targeting migrant minorities. And here, of course, the racial 
in distinction between foreign-born migrants and their native-born children or grandchildren um, is instructive, particularly in those countries where, uh, where these, uh, these latter, the so-called second and third generations, are officially classified as permanently foreign, as migrants, officially designated indefinitely foreign in spite of never having migrated. Um, now, in spite of their ostensibly nationalist militant particularisms, furthermore, each of these nativist movements from one country to the next is remarkably similar to all of the others. The sort of national chauvinism asserted by these far-right anti-immigrant political movements may occasionally be articulated as an aversion to the project of, for example, the European Union. But it may also flourish quite comfortably within the convivial confines of the new Europe. Indeed, among the most important contentions between political factions within and among member states regarding the administration of the EU is often the vexed question of so-called burden sharing around the larger management of the European border regime and the government of migrants and asylum seekers. That's to say the anti-immigrant nationalists may be found to be just as likely to clamor for greater involvement by the EU in the policing and fortification of their unique subsections of Europe's borders rather than less. In other words, perhaps paradoxically, these neo-nationalists are often quite ready to relinquish national sovereignty when it comes to the policing uh, to, of the borders of the larger European space. More generally, then, we must be alert to the emergence of new forms of expressly European conviviality, particularly as these may serve to articulate aversion or antagonism to non-European migrants. One kind of rather dram dramatic manifestation of these new formations of European identity is evidenced by the ideological framework that motivated Anders Breivik, um, Anders Breivik's bloodbath in Norway, in which, as is well known, a far-right nationalist project of racial whiteness explicitly upheld its specifically anti-Muslim racism by emphatically affirming a renewed devotion to images of a pan-European community, albeit associated with the pre-modern notion of Christendom. In these ways, and despite its apparent recourse to a kind of neo-medievalism, the historical specificity of the present crisis is clearly distinguished also by its enunciation within the now routinized ideological rubric of the so-called global war on terror, protracted warfare and neocolonial military occupations in predominantly Muslim countries, and the dramatic escalation of securitization generally. It is indisputable that Muslim migrants in particular have borne an inordinate burden of suspicion and hostility during recent years. But regardless of anti-terrorist pretexts and pretenses, these security state measures figure migration in general and other forms of cross-border mobility as well as principal targets. Nevertheless, it's not sufficient to direct our critical scrutiny only toward the violent outbursts and fascistic movements that have been steadily advancing and normalizing a more broadly anti-immigrant agenda. We must also interrogate the methodological and normative nationalist complacencies of liberal and left political frameworks, including some varieties of would-be critical migration studies, as well as many anti-racist movements that leave unexamined the nationalist presuppositions and of an assimilationist politics of integration. This is particularly important when so many of the official ideologies of the European nation states themselves, avow a kind of putatively 
anti-racist universalism that, however paradoxically, is <coughs> systematically mobilized to accuse migrants of parochialism and fundamentalism. Here, while we may be particularly attentive to the emergence of new or revised racial formations that are inflected or refracted specifically through religious identities or affiliations, we must also be alert to others that aggressively promote a Eurocentric variety of secularism, which equates a specifically European or Western civilization with universalism. In these latter articulations, so-called European values are juxtaposed with foreign ones. Universalism becomes one more militant particularism, and the demand for compulsory integration becomes a ruse that polices, penalizes, and disciplines migrants' alleged foreignness. Ultimately, such assertions of pronouncedly European universalism affirm the opposite, a pluralistic and relativistic conception of fundamental cultural incompatibility, and by implication, the impossibility of migrant assimilation. In the aftermath of decolonization, such projects may now be less confident about their global civilizing missions, but they have revitalized their supremacist pretensions and their self-satisfied assertiveness about the <coughs> differentialist politics of national prerogative and migrant exclusion. Whether the European question manifests itself as a resurgence of nationalist particularism or, alternately, universalistic secularism, therefore, we must begin to analyze these contemporary expressions of apparently idiosyncratic national identity and prerogative across Europe as distinctly post-colonial racial projects. Indeed, the supranational configuration of a new Europe and its concomitant European identity, which has been underway now for many years, particularly since the demise of the Cold War, can only be apprehensible in terms of an historically prior, comparably supranational formation of European community, one that was similarly constituted in terms of racial whiteness. That earlier version of Europe was predicated historically through Europe's colonial relation to the globe on the material and practical basis of a global regime of white supremacy. Here, after all, we must be reminded that we are speaking precisely of Europe. What is this place called Europe? How did the European nation states come about historically? What was the material basis of European wealth and aggrandizement? This, of course, was an uneven history in which not all European nation states were equal. The variety of particular national histories is surely not a monolith. Indeed, an essential feature of European history has always been the subjugation of some Europeans by others. Uh, nonetheless, we may affirm without reservations that the foundation of European prestige and prosperity for hundreds of years was precisely colonial empire. Across Europe's long and sordid colonial history, the overwhelming majority of Europe's laboring classes did not live in Europe, but rather inhabited the vast <coughs> expanse of colonized lands across Africa, Asia, and Latin America. George Orwell made this point quite succinctly in his memorable essay titled, Not Counting Niggers. The crisis of this earlier supranational European community was set in motion <coughs> by the era of decolonization that roughly corresponds to the historical period ensuing from the end of World War II, which was itself a fundamental condition of possibility for the particular dynamics of bipolar fracture that prevailed during what was otherwise known as the Cold War. Thus, the 20th century had been inaugurated 
by W.E.B. Du Bois's famous proclamation of the problem of the color line as the defining and, defi and decisive global fault line of the century, with European power and prestige figured centrally <coughs> in the ordering of a world premised upon what he memorably called the divine right of white people to steal. Confronted with the new imperialism that culminated in the ghastly bloodbath of World War I, Du Bois soberly declared, we darker men say, this is not Europe gone mad. This is not aberration nor insanity. This is Europe. Perhaps paradoxically, the end of the 20th century and the, commencements of, uh, the commencement of our current century have been prominently distinguished by the fervent invention and fortification of a border around a newly reunited Europe, a bordering that may be understood to be nothing less than yet another redrawing of the global color line. Perhaps still more paradoxically, European border policing has been increasingly externalized so that supposed would-be migrants are often apprehended and subjected to detention and deportation, sometimes multiple serial detentions and deportations, before they've ever crossed the ter territorial border of any <laughs> European state power, which now nevertheless designates them to be illegal migrants. The European Union has been exceptionally innovative in this regard enlisting states not only in northern Africa, but also in sub-Saharan Africa, and also beyond its eastern and southeastern borders, to do the work of policing the effectively virtual European border. Today, in the extended aftermath of decolonization for the hundreds of millions of people who formerly were largely confined to the mass prison labor camps that were Europe's colonies, Europe is now confronted with migrants and refugees from those same countries. Thus, a profound an enduringly poignant expression of the migrant struggle in Europe has long been the declaration, we are here because you were there. Hence, in the face of the inevitable harvest of empire, the mobility of the vast majority of people from formerly colonized countries has been illegalized. The escalation and dramatic expansion in the late 20th century, therefore, of migrant illegality must be apprehensible as the historical successor to the mass global immobilization of labor in Europe's colonies during the preceding decades. What we tend to imagine as fixed and established features of immigration law, including, of course, provisions and procedures for deportation and detention, are always, in fact, the more or less calculated interventions of legislation, jurisprudence, and enforcement policies. And not only do they have a history, but a remarkably recent history. Prior to various efforts to impose controls on the elementary human freedom of movement, most cross-border mobility long went virtually unregulated or un, uh, unobstructed. In this respect, the creation, first by the European Economic Community and now by the European Union, of a formalized European space of mobility, whereby EU citizens and residents may cross national borders without passport checks, can be understood to be more of a return to what was historically the norm rather than a radical new improvisation. Nevertheless, this is a European space of mobility, largely reserved for Europeans only. Of course, that's not to suggest that this system of differential rights to mobility is not riddled with its own contradictions, but by and large, this is a European space of mobility, largely reserved for Europeans only. Here it's instructive to recall the migration regime that prevailed in much of Western Europe between the calamitous destruction of World War II 
and the more recent era in which migrant illegality has proliferated. Following the period of reconstruction after World War II, the extended period of guest worker labor recruitment institutionalized the framework for the regularization and government of already existing prior migration flows. Notably, although many of the guest worker migrants came from European countries ruled by dictatorships, they were not considered political refugees. The guest worker regime channeled their migration as labor according to specific imperatives and organizing categories. When that regime came to an end, a new regime premised on asylum effectively foreclosed almost all other routes for legal migration and required all migrants to now refashion their mobility accordingly. Labor migration thereby assumed the only permissible form, that of refugees fleeing persecution and seeking asylum. Predictably, perfectly predictably, the inevitable result was an ever-increasing and ever-more aggressive outcry against the allegedly fake or bogus asylum seekers. By the 1990s, then, the European asylum system had succeeded to produce the material and practical conditions of possibility for a burgeoning influx of illegalized migrants. Allow me, then, to make this point again somewhat more forcibly. Judging it on the basis of its real effects, the European asylum system is precisely not a system for granting asylum to refugees. It routinely and regularly denies the vast majority recognition as legitimate asylum seekers and ordinarily grants refugee status to only about 12% of applicants. It's premised upon a comprehensive suspicion of people seeking asylum and is designed to disqualify as many applicants as possible as allegedly bogus asylum seekers. In terms of its real effects and what it actually produces, therefore, the European asylum system is a regime for the production of migrant illegality. Furthermore, the increasing securitization of human mobility has also served to generate a widely circulated discourse that identifies so-called bogus asylum seekers and so-called economic migrants, um, or merely economic migrants, with an assortment of security threats. By insinuating a vague and overwhelmingly unfounded affiliation of transnational, particularly non-European migration, with terrorism, organized crime, drug smuggling, illegal arms trading, human trafficking, and prostitution. It becomes easier to criminalize and dehumanize illegalized migrants and refugees, especially those racialized as non-white, and to thereby inflame the fears and suspicions of citizens into nativist hostility and anti-immigrant violence. Ever since the end of World War II and the post-war governmental problem of managing refugees and resettling displaced populations within Europe was met with a great proliferation of detention camps, we've seen only more and more detention for migrants and asylum seekers. Thus, those non-Europeans whom border agents apprehend en route to European destinations are overwhelmingly confined with no criminal charges, simply as an administrative measure, a problem of expedience whereby migrants and refugees are deprived of their liberty on no grounds other than their non-citizen status. However, it's also important to note that there's been a widespread trend toward the outright criminalization of unauthorized migrant status on a global scale. Thus, a narrow focus on strictly administrative detention would fail to adequately comprehend a key feature of many contemporary detention regimes that many countries in Europe, as well as those subcontracted in Europe's expansive border zone peripheries, increasingly charge unauthorized migrants and asylum seekers with criminal violations deriving strictly from their non-citizen status. 
An EU Commission's report on detention revealed in 2006 that there were then at least 130 detention centers in the 25 EU member states. At the time, this was probably an underestimate, and certainly by now the actual number is undoubtedly much higher, especially once we take into account all of the work of interdiction that transpires beyond the continental territorial limits of Europe itself on behalf of the European border enforcement regime. In addition to the plainly punitive character of detention for people whose only offense is their attempt to find a place in the world where they might hope to make a better life for themselves and their loved ones, the dramatic expansion and routinization of deportation and migrant detention also exposed the enormous investment of energy and resources for maintaining a European order partitioned by increasingly militarized or securitized borders. Uh, the regulation of borders is never merely a matter of exclusion, however. Detention camps obviously serve as extraterritorial dumping grounds for human beings who are deemed to be undesirable and out of place. Sanitizing the official borders that are supposed to verify a tidy sociopolitical order of European sovereignty. However, what's less apparent is that in many cases, many and even the majority of the migrants and asylum seekers detained in such camps are in fact often not deported, but eventually released. Thus, an additional role for these detention camps is to decelerate the momentum of migrant mobilities, operating effectively as disciplinary decompression chambers for migrants' trajectories as the migrants commence their more or less protracted apprenticeships as Europe's so-called irregular labor force, beginning, of course, with the severities and deprivations of the extended process of illegalized border crossing itself, including various periods of being temporarily stranded in detention. In order to underscore the formulation of what I'm calling the European question, which is fundamentally and ever increasingly fashioned in opposition to the post-colonial specter of a mob of mobile, non-white, non-Europeans, I've been invoking a notion of Europe in the singular. By positing the European question, we must nonetheless be acutely aware also of the need to defetishize all notions of Europe as a reified monolith, uh, the differential layering of relative inclusion within the new post-Cold War European project has been pronouncedly salient, for instance, over the course of the gradual accession of various Eastern European states to EU membership. Furthermore, it's important not to collapse the concept of Europe into the EU in an uncritical reflex of what we could call methodological EU-Europeanism. Um, from the Balkans to Chechnya, the unstable and anxious question about Europe's borderlands and boundaries has been repeatedly reposed from within. Furthermore, in spite of its campaign for admission to this European constellation, Turkey has remained, at least for now, resolutely beyond the pale and demarcates a decisive <coughs> frontier. Notably, in precisely this capacity of European frontier, Turkey, along with the countries of the southern coast of the Mediterranean, has become a decisive holding area as a zone of migrant transit, where, in a way that is analogous to the detention camps, but now writ large, human mobility is critically decelerated or temporarily suspended. Furthermore, the diversity within the larger European constellation refers us again to the profoundly uneven history and the ways in which the colonial projects of some European nation-states sometimes began, quote-unquote, at home with the subjugation of their European neighbors or with the internal colonial subjugation of purportedly 
uh, purportedly backward parts of their presumptive national territories. The legacies of the Cold War, furthermore, have ensured that some regions of the east of Europe have been, and partly remain, a crucial reserve of migrant labor, both within and across the borders of EU citizenship and mobility. Thus, a post-colonial critical perspective aimed at, aimed at provincializing Europe, to use uh, Dipesh Chakrabarti's phrase, um, through the lens of migration and race, must likewise address the new and ongoing productions of racial whiteness within and among distinct nationally or regionally inflected varieties of European identity. In other words, if indeed Europe may, may be said to be a racial formation of post-colonial whiteness, this certainly does not mean that all Europeans are equally white or white in the same ways. Um, like the racial formation of whiteness itself, the homogenizing character of a racial formation of Europeanness or European whiteness is precisely devoted to obfuscating and suturing what are otherwise very profound and consequential differences and inequalities. The constitutive contradictions and intrinsic antagonisms of Europeanness are precisely what the homogenizing racial formation of whiteness serves to superintend and recodify. In this regard, it's also crucial to sustain a critical attention to the enduring legacies of anti-Semitism and especially anti-Roma racism as these so-called internal figures of European alterity continue to animate the revitalized projects of both European identity and European national identities as post-colonial racial formations. In the era of European integration, Roma and Sinti communities in particular have been pronouncedly Europeanized, now increasingly figured as, in quotes, Europe's largest ethnic minority. A monolithic Romani construct serves to agglomerate and homogenize diverse communities dispersed across multiple national territories and to reinscribe them as a singular, so-called ethnic, alterity that is European only in as much as it is racialized as effectively non-European. They are European only as Europe's premier, so-called ethnic minority. Here, one could similarly contemplate the racialized indeterminacy or instability of such categories as Bulgarian or Romanian in Western European contexts where these ostensible national labels often euphemize Romani identities and become inextricably conflated with gypsy, uh, Roma, racial alterity. Similarly, one could consider the racialization of Muslim identities, such that Bosnian or Chechen come to demarcate racialized liminal figures, oddly located in the unstable and uneasy borderlands of Europe, but simultaneously in the greater orbit of Turkey and Turks as a long entrenched orientalized other standing at perhaps the most extreme and enduring border of Europe. In this manner, European comes to encompass a variegated and a contradictory continuum or nexus of racialized formations of whiteness that extend toward a series of off-white or not quite white borderland identities. Indeed, it's precisely this inescapable and vexing incoherence that always necessarily attends to all racial meanings, categories, distinctions, and discriminations. Hence, while European may generally operate to signify racial whiteness, it seems probable that Europeanness is increasingly asserted and affirmed as a way to distinguish the racialized difference between one category of foreigners in European spaces, such as Polish or other quote-unquote Eastern European migrants in the UK, for instance, in contradistinction with the complex field of racialized categories that pertain to those 
migrant foreigners understood to be decidedly non-European. Africans, Arabs, Asians, etc. How are these sorts of crude racial distinctions complicated further when they exist alongside so-called native Europeans who are not racialized as white? The black British, or British Asians, or um, the European-born children and grandchildren of past migrants from formerly colonies countries throughout Europe. Obviously, these questions can only be addressed in terms of the historical specificities attending to how and when and where they're posed, and indeed by whom. The European question, therefore, can serve as an instructive and arguably crucial index for vital historiographic and ethnographic research. Today, in the throes of the economic crisis, the fragility of the European Union in particular and the volatility of Europe more generally are plainly visible. The scapegoating of migrants and a new climate of immigration restriction have become standard features of the reactionary politics of misery and expanding precarity. In some countries with longer histories of post-colonial migration, such as the UK, non-white racial minorities are pressured to uphold, to uphold and affirm their national values and align themselves with the exclusionary politics of anti-immigrant restriction. In contrast, in some Eastern European countries, anti-Roma hostility takes precedence and migrants are sometimes extended a treacherous sort of invitation to participate on the side of the native majority in these more long-standing and entrenched racial conflicts. Everywhere, nonetheless, migrants are central to the ongoing social and political redefinitions of European space. So what is the future of Europe? How do competing projects of European identity imagine the future? How are migrants' sociopolitical and spatial practices actively creating a new Europe and consolidating an alternative European future in spite of escalating antagonism and conflict? The European question is as much about this struggle over the future as it is about accounting for the colonial past and the post-colonial present. If we begin to formulate research in terms of these questions and from the critical vantage point of those who are conventionally produced as outsiders to Europe, in spite of their very substantive social locations within Europe, we may indeed begin to reanimate the critical promise of constructivist perspectives on race, ethnicity, and nation, for we would thereby be engaged in a critical deconstruction of these sociopolitical processes as they are taking place in the present, in ongoing and unresolved struggles, the stakes of which implicate us all. And with that, I'll stop. Thank you.